0: Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash Bluewire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The timeline is a Blue Wire podcast.
1: Okay. Three. It's a great team win for us. All right. Congratulations, Coach. On, yeah, yeah. Coach. When we, we going to have practice after that all-star break, Coach? <laughs> <laughs> guys say real talk like
2: I I make a ton of mistakes in game out of game like these guys cover me a ton okay you guys cover me a ton I don't take it for granted I know what it's like in this league I've
1: been here for a long time okay when you have a good group you relish it we got a good group we got a special opportunity okay from the bottom of my heart I thank you guys for being who you are everybody back there like all you guys contribute yes sir and you have been from day one since i got here so Mm -hmm. this is just this is like the mission stuff i talked about right right. our goal is different but we got a mission i'm I'm gonna enjoy it like i can sit here and say oh it's no big deal you know what that would diminish what you guys do every day Mm -hmm. that would diminish the blessings that god gives us. you know what congratulations Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns Podcast. My name is Mike. I'm here with Sam. Sam, 10 wins in a row. Again,
2: double-digit win streaks again this season. How are you doing? Groundhog Day, my friend. We just, (laughs) uh, they keep doing it. I'll tell you what, I really thought, because we had kind of joked in the past, like, oh, this team just gets to the fourth quarter, and they sleepwalk through the first three quarters, and then they spank you in the fourth quarter, and that's that, but I thought their luck had ran out last night against the San yeah. Antonio Spurs I was like I know that they always do this but going into the fourth quarter I said okay but not this time they've dug themselves too deep a hole a 12 embra- point deficit I think. I'm embracing the loss it's okay you can't win them all nine in a row that's still great and then they open up the fourth quarter on a 15 to 2 run <laughs> and I'm just like <laughs> what the fuck is what without am I without Devin Booker um, who was those, playing well
1: yeah and then he and then he came in those and, are the those 20- and ended it
2: that's the 2022 Phoenix Suns for you, just continuing to make Suns history as, I mean, clearly on pace to be, like, by far the best regular season Suns team of all time. The only thing they need to do to solidify themselves as the best Suns team of all time is win the, win the whole damn thing. So, yeah. we'll see if they can do it. But, yeah, the, the level to which they uh, sort of remain consistent, it's almost uh, laughable <laughs> that they just— they. <laughs> well- They let opponents into the game and then they shut the door in the final six minutes and that's just how it is. It's... Though I think that
1: this Spurs win in particular is one of the best examples of finding different ways to win because it wasn't... As much as it was the Suns coming back in the fourth quarter and, and just slamming the door shut on any team that was trying to win against them, doing it with Ish Wainwright at center... For like fifteen minutes straight, Hell is yeah. completely different than anything else that we've seen before. Because oftentimes they rely on their defense; they'll rely yeah. on some great shooting by Devin Booker or Chris Paul at the end of the game, and some other guys that I'm going to talk about later in this episode. But in this game in particular, the Spurs were very, very prepared to attack the style of drop defense that the Suns were playing. Obviously, a very well coached team, and the Spurs, even with some of the guys that they had out, you know, Pop is going to prepare them, especially those guys. Those guys know what they have to do to get minutes. And they were really doing really well. And it looks like Monty and Chris Paul convened and decided to to put a small ball lineup in there with Chris Paul. And Ish Wainwright at center, switching things, playing some, you know, middle of the floor style playmaking by Ish Wainwright, finding guys shooting corner threes and somehow that was the lineup that ended this game for the Spurs it was pretty amazing to see Ish right, and really cool for a guy who's on the bench cheering these guys on consistently and on a two-way hasn't played a ton of minutes comes in and he's like the key piece the key thing in the rotation that ends this game
2: he had the game of his life by far the best game of his NBA career so far so good for Ish I, I really think there's I, I hesitate to say whether I really believe that this is what I'm seeing with my eyes is something that I can trust and is valued that you can really count on in the playoffs, right? It's just yeah. one game, so I will slow down, but there's a seedling there. There's something being planted there in Ish Wainwright that you can see and you can feel and it 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 feels like you know these small ball lineups, we all know they're going to be necessary <clears throat> come playoff time. Um, So for him, it's really just about how can he find any sort of way to bring value to the offensive end. I have pointed out a couple of times uh, in the past that it was nice to see him start to hit those corner threes. And now as of today, he's six for 10 on the season on corner threes. It really is beginning to feel like his spot. If he can just find any sort of way to bring that offensive value, I think the switchability on defense, the toughness, the grit, the offensive rebound rate, a lot of the other physical elements of his play, uh, that all speaks for itself.
1: Right. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the corner threes, and it was something that you were on top of before this game. You've made the P.J. Tucker comparison before, I think, on Twitter and on our playback streams uh, in particular, but he's shooting a lot better from the corners than the top of the key, as you've noted. And the other thing, too, when he's in the game, he's able still to screen for Chris Paul. Obviously, he's wide. (laughs) He's got those massive shoulders. He's very strong. Nobody's going to bowl him over on those screens and he can, you know, do some things in the middle of the floor, but what I thought was interesting about the minutes with him playing is that they could still park him in the corner, and the Suns did a lot of actions with Mikel Bridges being the screener with Ish Wainwright on the floor. Mikhail Bridges obviously has a lot of things he can do once he's in the middle of the floor. He can attack the rim, he can pop out for threes at the top of the key, he can shoot that mid-range shot, and he's a smart passer from the middle of the floor. So if you have a spread floor around Chris Paul and Mikel Bridges setting those screens, you can do a lot with it because Mikel Bridges is such a smart winning type of player. Uh, and then with yep. Ish Wainwright, if that corner three is going to be there for Ish Wainwright, you got to you gotta respect it. You have to guard him at that corner. And I think right. that's what allowed the Suns to do a lot of interesting things with
2: Mikel Bridges being that sort of Draymond Green type player. It's a really, really good point you made, and and in fact, uh, I was really glad to see. I don't know exactly which media member asked this to Monty Williams, but Kellen Olsen is the one who I saw a tweet about it where he said, Monty Williams said, Mikael Bridges has improved a lot as a screener in the offense, something the Suns used a lot in the fourth quarter. Bridges never did it two seasons ago, did here and there last year, and now knows the nuances to it this season with the increased reps. And so, yeah, again, like you were saying, how that plays into Ish Wainwright as the small ball is, Typically, it's not the role of a center. No matter if they're seven feet tall or six foot five, it's not the role of the center to stand in a corner and shoot corner threes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're gonna they're gonna be operating out of the dunker spot. If they're more of a floor spacer, maybe they're gonna be trailing the play, but they're gonna be kind of in the middle of the floor, not towards the corner. And so for Ish. I think he's starting to prove with this corner shot, and again, it's only 10 shots, but I think it's pretty clear at this point. You just watch him shoot from the corner, and he looks comfortable, and you just watch him shoot from the wing, and he doesn't. So I think it's pretty clear to get his three-point percentage up at this point. You want to funnel more of those attempts to the corners Mm -hmm. and less of them from above the break with him if you can. How you balance that, though, because you still want to be able to get him involved in screening actions— Is like you said, to use more Mikhail Bridges, to use more Cam Johnson, find unique ways to build uh, uh, more versatile sets. You know, I made the PJ Tucker comparison, but the interesting thing about that, when we saw PJ Tucker play so much center last, uh, a couple of years ago, I guess it was now, with the Mm -hmm. Houston Rockets, and of course PJ Tucker did that thing where he just stood in the corner and took threes, the Rockets offense operates. Uh, or operated much, much, much differently than the current Phoenix Suns offense. That offense allowed P.J. Tucker to just stand in the corner and have a five-spread-out offense because James Harden was just isoing basically every possession. So the idea was create as much space for James Harden as possible and let Mm -hmm, him go to work. mm -hmm. That's not how the Suns operate. They're much more of a motion offense. They're much more of a pick-heavy, high-screen-and-roll offense where they need other guys involved to help, Chris Paul or Devin Booker, whoever it is at the top of the key, really initiate into those sets. Um, so I think that's going to be a huge thing yeah. for Ish going forward. You know, well, you I, know, I like it's, the it's actually three. funny
1: that you say that because that's true and you're right. And he was involved in a lot of screens, and I think they were trying to allow Mikel Bridges to do that a little bit more to try to not put as much pressure on Ish Wainwright, especially after the amount of minutes he played in a row last night uh, towards the end of the game. But then Devin Booker checked in. And you know, Devin Booker hit that first play, which was like the J.J. Reddick's three-pointer coming around a screen yep. on the wing. But then two plays immediately after that, there was the isolation three with the spread floor. All five guys can shoot threes. Devin Booker just sort of iso pump faked, hit a three immediately after that. And then the next play after that, they allowed Devin Booker to ISO at the top of the key again. And that was essentially the Rockets because what he did was instead of bringing a guy to screen, He just crossed him over, got into the paint, and then Ish Wainwright hit that P.J. Tucker cut. Basically, the cut that we've seen P.J. Tucker make so many times to right in front of the rim once Devin Booker drew that extra defender. And uh, Ish Wainwright missed the initial layup but got that offensive rebound and I think hit the layup after that. And that was an example of Devin Booker being able to do some of the things that James Harden could do with a spread pick and floor, which is something you and I have talked about because Devin Booker's For shooting sure. percentages
2: yeah, I, go up with a spread floor too. Oh yeah, and of course his percentages will go up with a spread floor. I just mean I mean we all know Devin Booker could score 30 or 35 points per game if he really wanted to. He has the talent to do so. And and Monty being the smart coach that he is allows him that extra freedom in the last 5 or 6 minutes to kind of engage in some of those isolation possessions. That's the style of basketball that you really come to expect in clutch time. And for Devin Booker and Chris Paul, it works, but we just know it's not the entire offensive identity of this team. They're not playing that. That was all I, I meant is they're not playing that James Harden style of basketball for 48 minutes and for good reason. And so for ish, the corner three is a, the corner three is a great start. You know, it's a great start. Mm -hmm. Um, but now, how do you how do you constantly keep that balance? How do you keep him engaged in the offense where you want to have him as a screener? Um, I thought it was encouraging to see a couple of possessions where he screened and rolled and even mm-hmm. scored. And, you know, I don't think he has rim running capabilities. Like, he doesn't have that sort of lob threat gravity that you would expect from a JaVale McGee or maybe not even from a Bismack Biombo, But it was just encouraging to see him roll a couple of times, do anything at all to to sort of expand his offensive role. So... Good start last night. We'll see if it continues. You know, if DeAndre Ayton comes back, uh, and Ayton was questionable before the Spurs game, so I certainly hope he is coming back soon. Does that spell the end of Ish Wainwright minutes again for the time being, uh, except for, like, the rare occasion where you really need a small ball 5
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, probably. I'll be honest. It probably does. At this point, Ayton's not as much of a liability as Bismarck and JaVale McGee have been and uh, he can he can attack those things a little better so if anything he'd have to take minutes from JaVale or Bismack or you know the occasional game where DeAndre Ayton's in foul trouble which doesn't happen often but it happens occasionally i think in those cases Ish Wainwright can get minutes i think what for the Suns what they did is they use that lineup to come back on a team right it can hit a lot of threes and it's very switchable it can put a lot of pressure on ball handlers and that's kind of when they used it. So I think there are still scenarios where he could be utilized. But, you know, we it's kind of fun this season. we have You can never predict what's going to happen. We've had a Jalen Smith episode of this podcast. We've had a Bismarck Biombo episode of this podcast. Now we're having an Ish Wainwright <laughs> episode of this podcast because of it's these sort, of, sort of, of unlikely heroes
2: coming out of nowhere and winning games for the Suns. It just occurred to me that we have spent, uh, how deep into the episode are we now? The first what, fifteen uh, minutes, yeah. <laughs> the first eleven plus minutes of this episode, uh, talking about Ish Wainwright, principally, which I don't know how well that's going to sell to the audience, but you know, <laughs> it's you finally a it, chance. You got to do it. I, anyone who watched the <laughs> anyone who watched the game last night could see clear as day that he made an impact, and that to your point, just happens over and over again with all of the ninety percent of the role players on this team. They just have these games where they go crazy and. You got to talk about it because it's kind of an invaluable uh, mark that they're leaving on the identity of the Suns. The other 10% we don't talk about too much. but
1: It, it, it actually know. it puts the Suns in an interesting position now that the trade de- deadline's coming up and then the playoffs are coming up because Ish Wright's currently on a two-way contract. Two-way contract players are currently not allowed to play in the playoffs unless things change. And for the Suns, I think they have to weigh the value of a small ball center who's played fine right we haven't seen enough of it to know that he's great we haven't seen it work against a great team the Spurs were not very good Uh, fine but also has some level of continuity with the Suns players understands where they're supposed to be and doesn't have to sort of find a way to to find his place within the scheme and within the offense because it took a little bit of time for Ish Wainwright to do that, and any new player added to the Suns at the trade deadline, it would take time as well. The Suns could potentially find a better small ball center replacement than Ish Wainwright, but for them, they have to value the difference between the development and the continuity from, you know, our favorite words, from Ish Wainwright in this regular season going into the playoffs, and then trying to add a new player into the Suns' chemistry during the trade deadline uh, and I, honestly, I don't know where I stand. I think it depends on who's available. You know, as as far as the small ball center, I think Ish Wainwright in a in a scenario where the Suns stay relatively the same after the trade deadline, or maybe just add Eric Gordon, I think you have to find a way to keep Ish Wainwright for the playoffs. But if they start to make changes, I think Ish Wainwright's future with the team
2: is is still up in the air. Right, for sure, it is for sure. It has to be the right two for one or three for two trade to come along, although. Now that you mention it, this wasn't in our outline, but just because you threw out the magic C word there, uh, continuity. <laughs> mm-hmm. I And because we're talking about the trade deadline, I feel tempted to bring up the fact that James Jones was on the Suns broadcast mm-hmm. yesterday for the entire second quarter and on the one hand said uh, just about nothing interesting at all, said <laughs> exactly what you would expect him to say where he brought up that word continuity and he talked about internal development. And I thought it was particularly... Uh, interesting to see the contrast in real time as I was watching the game because at the time the Suns were sort of shitting the bed and specifically they were shitting the bed in the second quarter led by Alfred Payton who could not make a shot to save his life and Landry Shamet actually who could not make a shot to save his life as James Jones was sitting there talking to Annie and K-Ray about uh, internal development and continuity. Are you at all worried at this stage that... I'll phrase it like this. Obviously, a smart GM, when he goes out and says that they're not interested in really making changes, it's it's bluffing. It's building leverage, right? That's what we are choosing to believe. But knowing the history of James Jones and that he hasn't been particularly active in his first two trade deadlines with the Suns, he got Tory Craig last year, but I wouldn't call that a major move. It turned out to be um, pretty good in the end, but you know it wasn't a major acquisition are you at all worried that James Jones is not bluffing when he mm. goes out and does these media interviews or is it just totally building leverage? This is exactly what, you know, a, a smart executive is doing and there's no reason to worry. Uh, changes are going to
1: right. I'm not very, I feel like they're going to do something small. I think, you know, the rumors are rumors, you know, they're, you can't really rely on them entirely. And oftentimes, you know teams are calling about players to see if they're available but then nothing you know transpires after that because the deals just don't line up right but the rumors are that the suns are looking for another shooter and you know we're going to mention it in a minute too again but shamit just rolled his ankle another example and he hasn't really been playing well up to that point defensively fine offensively bad we're not going to stick on that any more than we have been for the last few episodes but i think it's clear that the suns want an upgrade there and even maybe to find an upgrade to play three guard minutes with Devin Booker and Chris Paul. So I, I'm not overly concerned. He also made, you know, a midseason trade. He also traded Trevor Ariza for Kelly Oubre. So there is a track record of him doing things midseason if he believes that it's something that could improve the team going forward. And uh, I'd be more concerned, I think, if the Suns weren't clearly the best team in the NBA. But, you know, they're, the, the Warriors have had time without... Draymond Green, which makes a big difference, and we're not sure exactly what that's going to look like come playoff time. You know, maybe Steph Curry gets his groove back a little bit. That's all it would take. So little tiny moves to maximize this window. The Suns are the best team in the NBA. Look, we're uh, going to talk about this too. 40 wins before 10 losses, 13-1 and in January alone. The only team in the NBA to have over a 90% win percentage in a month, and they've done it twice they're clearly the best team in the NBA this season. But that also means that this is their best chance to win an NBA title. So I think the question of whether or not they do small moves on the margins matters. And I don't want them to be too precious with their assets. So I guess part of me is a little bit worried.
2: But where are you at as far as being concerned? Well, you should know. I don't give a shit about assets. But the thing is, like, I don't think James Jones gives a shit about assets either. I don't think James Jones is – he doesn't strike me as the type of GM to be uh, counting his treasure uh, (laughs) chest of draft picks in his office uh, high up uh, above the practice facility. I don't think that's the type of GM GM James Jones is at all. So, you know, my fear kind of doesn't stem from that. My fear kind of stems from what if Jones, who, you know, I've agreed with 90% of what he's done in his son's tenure so far, obviously, and he's, you know, it's all turned out amazing, but – what if he has a little bit too much conviction uh, with kind of he sets a plan in the summer. He says this is the plan, and then he kind of persists with this faux sense of confidence and doesn't make necessary adjustments midseason when he has the chance. And does that have right. the opportunity to bite you in the ass come playoff time? Because the Suns are an amazing team right now. In fact, if we're ready to move on to just talking about being forty and nine, I've you know I've got some stats to talk about that as well. But uh, yeah, that yeah. doesn't mean. That there aren't still major threats in both conferences Uh, yeah so as as we talked about you know I talked about on YouTube recently that was the whole point of that video I don't think any of those uh, I you know I don't think you have to go out and make a major acquisition but you got to think about these things
1: yeah I think there is a danger in being too confident but you know the Suns did lose in the NBA finals last year they were right on the doorstep of a championship and they missed out on it so I would be shocked if they didn't do everything that they could and i would be suspicious of the motivations of that you know whether they're James Jones or Robert Sarver related if they did absolutely nothing and i understand what's going to happen sam here's probably what's what's going to happen is they're going to do nothing and then you and i are going to say things about how disappointed we are about them doing nothing and then people <laughs> are going to pile on to us about how good they are and how why should they do anything as the best team in the nba but you know that's happened to us before in the past so i guess we're relatively prepared for that but yes 40 and 9 13 and 1 in January by the way in January they're beating teams on average by like about 10 points per game so they're beating teams uh, pretty dramatically in that time period as well you got some stats I just want to talk about it because this has been an amazing an amazing year if you will 2022 so far only lost one game
2: so far but I'd like to hear what you think about this team so far yeah, I mean, I, I kind of said off the top of the episode, I gave it away like this. They are clearly on pace to be the best Suns team of all time at this stage, at, at the very least the best regular season Suns team of all time. We all know that this team has never won more than 62 games in a season. They did that twice, and they are currently on pace for 67 wins. So that's not the fanciest stat out there, but I don't really know what more else needs to be said Uh, I think that kind of speaks for itself when you talk about regular season production one thing to contextualize kind of what the competition looks like that I wanted to bring up um, I've talked about basketball references SRS stat before it's their simple rating system and basically all it is is a combination of net rating what it seeks to do is uh, quantify the best regular season teams of all time in the NBA with a combination of net rating first and foremost and then also factoring in strength and strength of schedule Uh, which effectively just means giving Western Conference teams in the past 20-25 years a little bit of a bump in that stat because they play a harder schedule, they play more games out West, depending on especially what division they're in, and the Suns definitely benefit from that. The Suns currently have an SRS of 7.76, that probably doesn't mean anything to you, but trust me when I say that that is by far the best SRS of any Phoenix Suns team in franchise history. Only two teams in the NBA this year have an SRS of at least 7.5, the Phoenix Suns and the Golden State Warriors. And here's a stat that I thought was interesting. If you look at the past 25 years, the only two other seasons in which there were two NBA teams that had this SRS, this net rating slash strength of schedule stat, That had an SRS of at least 7.5 in the past 25 years, only two years where at least two teams were as good as the Suns and Warriors this year. And that was 2016 with the Golden State Warriors, who won 73 games, and the San Antonio Spurs, uh, who surprisingly those two teams never faced each other because the Spurs were bounced by the Thunder in the second round, if you remember. Mm -hmm. And then 1997, the Chicago Bulls and the Utah Jazz, the two teams that met in the finals. We all know what happened to Mm -hmm. those jazz there was a somewhat popular sports documentary that came out about it a couple of years ago you might have heard of it Um, but that's kind of what we're looking at right now in terms of the strength of what the Phoenix Suns are currently doing and as you know as many jokes about Steph and his performance recently as you want to make what the Golden State Warriors are doing this year if these two teams meet in the playoffs it's going to be kind of this unprecedented, relatively unprecedented meeting of juggernauts. Right. Like I think right. some people have compared it to the Houston Rockets from a few years ago that really had a chance to get by the, the Warriors and weren't able to, ultimately. And that was a really, really, really good team. And they won 65 games in one of those seasons, I believe. Uh, but these two teams, if they're on a collision course right now, you don't get something like this all that often, so I you know I just kind of wanted to contextualize that for people. Like you right. don't usually see two teams this good that have the potential to meet in the Western Conference Finals, and if that happens this year, it could be depending on injuries and all that, could be pretty special uh, for yeah. both sides, and could be a, and more importantly, could be a huge challenge for both sides too.
1: Yeah, I and and it, it's actually really interesting that you brought that up, and that both of those teams, as far as those SRS numbers are in the Western Conference because here's just a basic thing that Phil Jackson came up. I know we've talked about it on this podcast before, but Phil Jackson defined a contender by 40 wins before 20 losses. We know the Suns now are the only team in the NBA that have 40 wins before 10 losses. And there are teams in the West that could reach 40 wins before 20 losses here, but there are no teams in the East that will meet meet that metric. Um, you know, it's interesting that... I think the beginning of the year, the expectation is that the teams at the top of the East were going to be better than the teams at the top of the West, and I understand the reasons. You know, the Bucks won a championship. The Nets have two MVPs and three All Stars on their team, and the expectation was that they were going to be better. Neither of those teams are going to meet that forty win before twenty loss mark, which is just kind of interesting that it's sort of playing out. That they've way already. It is.
2: They've already lost twenty games, both of them. The Bucks right, and Nets. exactly.
1: Yeah, so there's, they're just not going to meet that <laughs> metric. And even yeah. and even the Heat, who are at the top of the NBA
2: or at the top of the Eastern Conference, are not there. Uh, so it's just something. But that's bizarrely, just bizarrely, here we are, and the Bucks are in the fifth seed, and the Nets are in the sixth seed. The Nets are literally three games uh, out of the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference in the loss column. And yet those are the two teams that scare me most at this point in the Eastern Conference um, right, for sure. Right. And and scare, I use scare, I use that word loosely, but you know, the two teams that I think at full strength would match up best on the Suns at this point, the Heat, the Bulls, the Sixers, they're great teams. You got to take them seriously, but there's not that intimidation factor as the prospect of a real Bucks uh rematch or the Nets with all of their big three, uh, if they could have all of their big three, right? Yeah, do you, are you on the same page regarding yeah. that, or do you feel differently about the East?
1: No, absolutely, and I think I feel a little more worried about the Bucks than the Nets, just because you know the Nets' their home court advantage is not great. One, Kyrie Irving can't play at home. Two, their fans aren't—you know—it's just not quite the same. <laughs> I'll just say that. I think we can get a lot of Suns fans into that Brooklyn arena uh, if they end up meeting in the playoffs. So I think that. I think the Nets would be better if they were fully healthy. I don't know. It's interesting because we just haven't seen enough of it to really know what it would look like defensively and how scary that would be. But yeah, I think the Bucks are probably the biggest threat right now. It just depends. Chicago is kind of interesting. Miami, Miami at full strength is kind of a scary team. I think they're relatively similar to the Suns as far as offensively and how they're built, but they have a lot of shooting around them. So, you know, any Miami team... Any team that goes against Miami, they're worried about them just getting hot for a round and making all the threes that they possibly can, and they're just gonna blow you out if sure. that happens. So that's a little scary. I,
2: my brief concerns about Miami at this point, you know, obviously that was a team that took it to the Suns a few weeks ago. They were the they were the last loss, I think, for Phoenix. The most yeah. recent loss, ten yeah. or eleven games ago, was that blowout loss to Miami. And uh I, I don't think Miami's a better team than Phoenix at all. I do think they could uh take us to six. Uh, <laughs> I, I like if you were if I was forced to kind of comment on how I feel about <laughs> it right now. There are real, so the thing about Miami obviously there are terrific, terrifically versatile defensive team that I think could really give Chris Paul and Devin Booker various kind of fits throughout a series with the types of defenders that they could put on those guys. And for the Suns, it would really be up to them to squeeze as much offensive output out of other guys as they can. Where Miami could come into trouble uh, or run into issues is they are not vetted at the end of fourth quarters offensively, like the Suns are vetted. When you get into the last five or six minutes of a close game, you know Chris Paul and Devin Booker show up. You can't necessarily say the same thing at this point about Tyler Hero, who's gonna win six men of the year, but is just not the same level of creator. You certainly can't say the same thing about Bam Adebayo with his current level of offensive development. And Jimmy Butler is the main guy, but even with him, you can't you can't say it at this point. Yeah. He's, he's just Kyle Lowry, he's too, not at the same level. He doesn't score. Kyle Lowry too of course yeah but none of them score quite as dynamically uh close your ears Raptors fans if you're listening to this but none of them (laughs) score quite as dynamically as Chris Paul um and certainly not Devin Booker either so you know that's I think where Miami could run into trouble and that's kind of where they feel like they don't feel like a fake first seed they're 32 and 18 right now we we just talked about how the Eastern Conference is just kind of weird there are just five or six teams that are really pretty good um but they, yeah, they don't bring the Milwaukee intimidation factor for me. They just don't. Yeah. Uh, Milwaukee is just a really bad, I think they remain a pretty bad matchup for the Suns. For the everyone. The Suns can certainly win that series, but regardless. Yeah. For yeah. everyone. And, and the Heat just don't present the same physical challenges uh, in the playoffs. They don't. Yeah, I agree. Devin Booker in the Giannis, month, in, in the month
1: of January. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Devin Booker in the month of January, 28 points, six rebounds, four assists. And the Suns were 13-1 in the month of January. Do you think he could win Player of the Month? I think there's a chance that Devin Booker will win Player of the
2: Month in the month of January. So the way Player of the Week and Player of the Month work is consistently you are rewarded for winning. This is actually one of the stats where you are like guaranteed to be rewarded for winning. In fact, it used to frustrate Suns fans so much a couple of years ago because you would have weeks where Devin Booker would score 45 points per game and the Suns would go 1-3. and three or two and two and he wouldn't win player of the week. Uh, Mm -hmm. and because it would go to some guy who averaged 25 points per game on an undefeated team. I'm using that logic to say that now you can finally benefit. You can reap what you sowed and, uh, Devin Booker will win player of the month. Uh, or even like, you know, Chris Paul has a chance at player of the week currently just because the Suns are undefeated and these guys are playing out of their minds. Yeah. It's, you know, if Bismack Biombo was averaging 20 points per game over the past month, he would have a chance too. because the Suns are undefeated <laughs> with Bismack Biombo up until this point, And yeah. that is a true fact. They are literally 11 and 0 since they signed Bismack. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's just how it works. Obviously, Book's been playing out of his mind, but also just the, the you just point at the wins. Uh, so I think that's pretty much a lock, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Chris Paul also fif- basically 16 points, 12 assists in the month of January. Uh, so an amazing month for him too we have more to talk about after a break but before we go to a break i just want to quickly say monty williams is coaching in the all-star game officially the suns won enough wins that no team could catch up to them before the all-star break at this point so even if they went 0 for the rest of the games before the all-star break monty williams is still going to be the coach the coach with the best record at the all-star break coaches the all-star game for those who don't know Uh, that means monty will be coaching LeBron James, finally. I know that he had the opportunity to coach him and turned it down. And Now we'll be coaching LeBron James again. A cool thing, I think, and the, and it's something that I think mattered to the players. They wanted to get Monty in there and get him some recognition and some love for what he did with his Sun team this season.
2: And other sun staff, by the way. Not yeah. just Monty Williams, but the rest of his staff comes with him. So I, right. I, I actually, I don't know if it's literally all of the staff, but I know at least some of the assistant coaches will be there. Yep, so yep, that's right. Fun. So that's
1: pretty cool. No Suns in the starting lineup. <laughs> that was announced until the last time we recorded. No Suns in the starting lineup for the All-Star game, but at least we got Monty in their coaching. And you know what? If it's a close game, they're doing the Elam ending. Who's Monty going to trust if he's got Chris Paul and Devin Booker? And it's going to be a close game at the end of the game. I have a feeling that those two guys might be on the floor at the end of the game for the Elam ending. But let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we have some more to talk about. And then we'll take a few questions from you guys online. So we'll be right back.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
1: okay Sam I wanted to talk about Cameron Johnson just a little bit because he's been so good lately and I thought it would be a good time for us to just sort of revisit the whole Cameron Johnson story from the beginning because I think it's been kind of fascinating he had another poster in this last game he actually was hoping that it would have been more of a poster he specifically asked that the, he was said that he was hoping the defender jumped more into him on his dunk attempt so that it could have been a more violent poster at the rim but just to quickly revisit the Cam Johnson story the Suns drafted him at 11th and it was widely viewed as a reach for Cameron Johnson at that pick you know people didn't necessarily say he was going to be a bad player but it was widely, almost universally viewed as a bad pick. He was also drafted as a shooter. Essentially, the idea was this is all he could do. Uh, I think the majority, the consensus was that people were unsure of his ability to be a defender or to do anything off the dribble. Now, he's become a pretty great team defender, relatively good one-on-one on defense as well. And of course, we've seen what he can do off the dribble. He has the poster attempts where he'll go at guys and dunk on them. He has the successfully completed poster dunks against Jared Allen, P.J. Tucker, and JaVale McGee. I think he dunked on as well, his own teammate (laughs) he dunked on in a previous season. But here's some things I wanted to point out to you. He's actually third in fourth quarter scoring for the Suns after Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Wow. So, yeah, actually up there right now is Bismarck Bionbo. I'm not counting that because Bismarck hasn't played enough games in enough fourth quarters to count him. But is right now, points per game? Points per game in the fourth quarter, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and then Cameron Johnson is third currently in okay. fourth quarter scoring. In the fourth quarter, he's shooting 56% from the field, 50% from three, and 83%, <laughs> and 83% from the free throw line. Um, in the month of January, now that the Suns have been kind of injured lately, he was basically the Suns' most consistent scorer outside of Chris Paul and Devin Booker. The third highest scorer on the team has now passed in January. Mikkel Bridges as the third highest scorer. DeAndre Ayton normally would be third. He's missed enough games that it basically was Cameron Johnson for this month. So I just wanted to give some love to Cameron Johnson. Just point out, just he's, he was drafted People were unsure of him, drafted as one thing, became something else. Now he is a shooter, right? He is a shooter that he was drafted to be, but he's become so much more. And I think it's been really fun to watch what he's become on this team so far.
2: I think it was really fun to talk about when we did that. Uh, let me recall quickly, the Timberwolves playback. There's your weekly plug for the playback stream. <laughs> but that was just a perfect example of like, he went off, I think, for 23 points in that game. And you saw the way that the offense clicked with Cam Johnson on the floor in a way that it often doesn't with Jay Crowder. Yes, Jay Crowder can shoot threes. He's a streaky shooter. And when he gets hot, it's really fun to watch him as well. But uh, with Cam, there's just an extra diversity to his offense. Um, You know, it's not just... I'm going to shoot the three, and if I don't get the three, I'm going to drive in, and I'm going to take the floater, and if they take that away from me, then I don't have anything else to go to. I love Jay Crowder, but that's kind of the case when you talk about his offense. With Cam, he's got the extra explosiveness. He feels comfortable going into the one-dribble mid-range pull-up. He runs the floor really, really, really well in transition, whether it's finding the lane for the layup, the running dunk, or, of course, leaking out uh, sort of further and deeper into the corners or on the wing. Uh, to shoot the three, so I mean, offensively, he's he's just really really clicking. Defensively, doesn't provide quite the same value um, as Jay no. at that point. And you know, if we want to talk about, if we want to talk about where's the future for Cam and like how uh, I guess what his ceiling is, if that's kind of the direction you want to go here, if you want to revisit a ceiling conversation yeah. with Cam Johnson, which we should probably do generally at some point. You know, that's where you can split hairs and say, okay, maybe he's not exactly the guy that you want. Uh, in all sorts of lineups, uh, depending on playoff matchups, right now. But he has certainly earned the opportunity to be a consistent, like, 30-minute per game every night, even when Jay Crowder is in the rotation. Cam Johnson is uh, more than talented enough to be playing that role for the Suns. He's basically their de facto sixth man and will continue to be, like, their third or fourth leading scorer on most nights, I think, because he's also just shown to be so much more confident consistently on offense than Mikhail Bridges. So, yeah. Yeah. Great job all around for Cam Johnson. He's had a hell of a month.
1: Re- really great month. A really great season so far. I think it took him a little time to get back from injury a little bit, but he's fully rebounded since then. The Suns will run him off of screens on the wing. You know, he'll cut to the rim. He'll catch it, pump fake and drive to the rim. Occasionally, he'll run a pick and roll himself. But I, I want to ask you just what do you think? Because right now, I think Cameron Johnson overall raises the ceiling of this team, just as you talked about, raises the offensive ceiling mostly. But what do you think he could develop individually for him that could raise his ceiling as a player going
2: forward? Yeah, so I think uh, traditionally when we've talked about a lot of the things that Cam has trouble with, it's all uh, tied down to this fact that Yes, Cam is much more athletic than the player that was sold to us coming out of UNC, right? But he still has these athletic limitations that are going to prevent him from being, you know, the most explosive. Like, for instance, he's a great vertical leaper, as we've all been able to see with the dunks on P.J. Tucker and ja- JaVel McGee in the past and whoever else last night against San Antonio. He's not the most explosive first step guy. And so that's going to limit Cam Johnson's ability to you know, initiate a million and one pick and rolls a game if you wanted him to be that guy in the future. There's reason for us to believe that he can't be that guy. Even though he has the ability to attack a closeout, it can't be um, the primary portion of his offense. So you look at other places in his offense where you can kind of try and maximize him and optimize what you already have. Um, I think one thing that Cam himself has talked about a lot, and this is Given how much I've I've brought this up with Devin Booker in the past, it should not surprise anyone that I'm talking about it yet again with Cam Johnson. But the pull-up three, you know, like last year, Cam Johnson was a 35% three-point shooter. And honestly, I thought that maybe we were sold uh, a little bit too good of an idea of who he was as a shooter coming out of college. And I was starting to lose hope that he was really that 40% guy. Well, this year he's come come out guns blazing, should absolutely be in the three-point contest at All-Star Weekend, by the way and is unstoppable on catch and shoot threes but if you ask him about what he's working on in his game every day he's taken numerous opportunities to talk to the media and say yeah I'm working on that pull-up shot I would like more opportunities Uh, well I don't know if he's literally said he would like more opportunities but just if he gets those opportunities to slide around and more comfortably pull up into his own shot on offense he would like to take those threes and so for him the more gravity that he can create kind of as an ancillary piece in the offense the better it's going to look and the easier it's going to become for the star players like chris paul and devin booker the goal with cam johnson isn't necessarily for to set this lofty expectation that he can become this 22 to 25 point per game scorer who carries the offense on his own but i think he can do all of the little things to accentuate your offense just about at like an 80 to 90th percentile level or better, and it's going to make your superstars look so much better. Pull-up shooting is just one example of that.
1: Yep, I agree, and I think even with Landry Shamit missing some time, even Cameron Johnson's ability to sort of slide around offensively and play everything from two to five is going to benefit the Suns because if Jay Crowder comes back, and Landry Shamit's still hurt, I think, believe it or not, that could increase the amount of minutes that Cameron Johnson's getting going forward. And so now I think at some point in this offseason, we're going to have to have some serious conversations about Cameron Johnson and what he's going to get in an extension in the same free agency that DeAndre Ayton is up for a new contract. And that's going to be a really interesting summer for the Suns. We'll skip that for now because we're going to have a lot of time to talk about that later. And a lot of things can happen between now and then. But I think he's put the Suns in a really difficult and interesting position. And I do think that a lot of Suns fans will recognize the value that Cameron Johnson brings to this team and how important he's going to be for the team going forward. All right. I asked when we started recording four questions on Twitter. And forgive me because right now I'm going to tell you we're not going to get to all of these. We're definitely not. I just wanted a few.
2: 20 I see 26.
1: Okay, 26. Right 26 so far. So thank you guys for asking questions. We're going to try to get to 4. That's what Sam and I agreed to during our <laughs> break. Uh, so sorry about that. And and in the future, I think we'll have to do a major mailbag
2: at we some will. point. Maybe post soon. It's been post trade it's been deadline. Long. Yeah. That sounds good. All right, the Yeah, first I think if one, we do it, I'll tell you right now. I think if we I, I think if we do it before the trade deadline, we're just going to get only trade questions. So maybe one immediately after the trade deadline would be a good idea.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a perfect time to do it. So, okay,
2: remind us by the way on Twitter if
1: we forget because we will. Uh, but yes, the first one I want to get to is from Ray Mariscal, uh, Ray Mariscal twenty six on Twitter. He said, "Are you concerned about the CP three and book minutes?" seem to be hitting the 40 minutes mark a lot lately and does the shamit injury maybe force james jones hand to make a trade earlier than expected so this is a great question something that i wanted to address and then i forgot to put it on the outline so shout out to ray for reminding us to talk about this as fun as it's been for the suns to win 10 games in a row chris paul's been playing too much chris paul's towards the top of the league in the total amount of minutes played so far this season and this is the oldest player on the Suns and you know, one of the two most important players going into the playoffs for the Suns. So I'll just say, yes, I am concerned with it. And I think at some point, Monty's gonna have to really figure out a way to balance the idea of winning every single game and keeping these guys healthy going into the playoffs. And look, they have a nice lead right now in the West, and I know this team is gonna wanna they want they wanna break every record. We've said it before. James Jones said that this team talks about wanting to break every record for the Suns, including the most wins in a season. But at some point, they have to reduce those minutes. And Cameron Payne, obviously, coming back would help a lot. But Landry Shammond even taking some of that responsibility in the time that Cameron Payne's been out has helped a little bit. But the Suns can't rely on other guys like Alfred Payton to do the things that Chris Paul and Cameron Payne do. So, yeah, I am concerned. And there's not a lot of options for the Suns. And we'll see if that forces
2: his hand to make a trade. But what do you think, Sam? I think the biggest indication of it when you watch the Suns play right now is just that if they really took Chris Paul's health so seriously, and of course we've talked before about how Chris is not the type of guy who's going to allow Monty to pull him out for large stretches of time. He wants to play, he wants to do what he needs to do to win the game. But if the Suns cared so much about preserving Chris Paul, Alfred Payton, even if he's a bad basketball player, would be out there playing 15 or 20 minutes, the same amount of minutes that campaign typically gets. And the fact that Alfred Payton is only playing 7 or 8 minutes... And Landry Shamet, even against big opponents, is only playing 12 or 15 minutes, should tell you they just flat out don't trust these guys. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think James Jones would be—it's it, obvious. You look at the issues with this team right now, it's obvious. He must see it, and that's kind of what led to my uh, bringing up that question to you before about is he just bluffing or is he not bluffing? Because there's a clear depth issue uh, related to guard on this roster right now, and it must be resolved— I don't want Chris Paul to be playing 38 minutes per game for the rest of the season. Devin Booker on his young legs, a little worried about him as well, given the injury history. But for the most part, I believe he can handle it. Chris Paul, that's just foolish. I mean, you know, that's just really, uh, really foolish to go into the playoffs Mm -hmm. and playing that guy that many minutes. Yeah, yeah. Simply put.
1: I agree, I agree. All right, do you want to pick a question that we can
2: answer next? Yes, in thinking about that question, though, I didn't have the opportunity to look here so give me just two seconds to find something well Um, i can
1: i can read one in the meantime Uh, this is from los uh, at los okay okay one yeah uh, on twitter and and yeah this is it's just a really basic one but it's something that we just mentioned earlier in the podcast this team and he said do you believe it's fair to compare this 2022 suns team to the 2018 rockets uh so you know obviously there's some Obvious comparisons on there, just mainly Chris Paul uh, being the main comparison. And then I guess you could say the comparison of Devin Booker to James Harden is another comparison that people could try to make, I think. But do you think it's fair to compare this 2022 Suns team to the 2018 Rockets? Um, in what sense
2: are we comparing them exactly?
1: Well, whatever sense you want, because I think people will. Because I think people will. The Rockets were really good that year. I think that's the main thing, but I guess people maybe people's expectations of this Suns team going against the Warriors.
2: I think is probably one way that people would care. Right. I, I think I already talked about this earlier this episode. It's like people. I I re, I really think it's as shallow as people just think of the Chris Paul connection. And yeah. that's fine. That's fair. Both teams had Chris Paul. Both teams are really good. Both teams might go up against the Warriors. So that's what it is. It all revolves around Chris Paul's opportunities at redemption to finally get this monkey off his back that that he's been trying to get off his back for however many years. But the Suns, the 2022 Suns, just play smarter basketball than the 2018 Rockets. They just do. The 2018 Rockets were propelled by superstardom uh, and had a ragtag group of role players around them that kind of fit together. Uh, to build enough of a roster. They were a really good team. I don't want to diminish, you know, their successes and take away from what they were able to do. Uh, I think Maury Ball, kind of as a general concept was really interesting, but they just didn't have as well rounded a roster. They didn't have guys outside of James Harden and Chris Paul on their roster. Who could do the types of things that Mikael Bridges and Cam Johnson do with the basketball in their hands, or even to to a certain extent, guys like Jay Crowder at the big man level? They didn't have a guy like DeAndre Ayton either. Clint Capella was not that guy. So I think just all around, I mean, you know, Harden was Harden. Yeah. But the rest of that roster doesn't really hold a candle to to the 2022 Suns in my eyes. They're just quite simply not as versatile. Well, um, and I. I- more in the style of play, I just wouldn't exactly.
1: Him. That's that's exactly what I was gonna say. It's a versatility of a style of play, and I think, I think that Monty Williams is just a better coach than Mike D'Antoni. <laughs> I think I we agree. could just we could just say that right now. Mike D'Antoni was sort of always on like maybe a top top five, top ten coaching uh, trajectory as far as every every year that he was a coach. But every team he coached had a relatively bad defense. That Houston Rockets team was able to sort of get over that a little bit and be the best defensive team he's ever coached. But, you know, we've seen him coach the Suns before. This is the best defensive team the Suns have ever had, and we're right there with them there. But I think the way that they were required to shoot certain shots is just so drastically different. This team is a team that missed 27 straight threes in a row in the playoffs and then never strayed from doing that. <laughs> they just kept doing it over and over and over again because that's what they were trained to do and look, you know, oftentimes I don't want to talk about like mental toughness as an as a concept or as an idea because I don't think that's what it is. I think it's just a style of play. It's the types of shots that they were getting, and the Suns get different types of shots. Even if it comes down to just comparing Chris Paul's season this season to that season, he shot a lot more threes that season, and he's able to get to the spots that he is most successful at this season in the Suns because the offense. Is, is built in a way that allows him to do that. And Monty Williams, as a coach, allows him the freedom to do the things that he's best at within the offense. So I think the comparison, I'll say this, I don't think it's completely unfair because that team was very, very good and it was led by Chris Paul and, you know, another star shooting guard next to him. It wasn't like the Clippers, like this Suns team, you can't really compare to the Clippers because that Clippers team was built so differently. So in that sense, okay, I guess it's kind of fair, but I just think they're so different in style of play that it's very, very surface level,
2: just as you pointed out, Sam. But yeah, do you have another question that you want to get to? I think it, yes, I will in a second. I think it's just a good barometer of dividing. The people who compare and think that they're doing so in good faith, who compare those two teams, you will find basketball analysts who do it. But it's very easy to tell the basketball analysts who are paying attention and those who aren't. And I think if someone brings up a comparison of those two teams, that should be a giveaway. Um, one question uh, here that I thought was really good from Dylan. If the Suns had a fully healthy roster, mm. how would you divide the center minutes in yeah. the playoffs? So right. I think we all know DeAndre Ayton's the first uh, the, the first string center. But theoretically, if you had Scharch, if you had Frank back, you've got JaVale, you've got Bismack, you've got Ish Wainwright even. I mean, what does the rest of the death chart yeah. even look like, in your opinion? Can I just say,
1: was Frank playing better than any of their backup centers b- when he was injured? <laughs> I- I'm kind of serious.
2: Bef- before he was injured? Right
1: mean? before he was injured. In the, yeah. then the 10 or so games right before he was injured. Was he playing better than Biombo? Better than JaVale? Better than Dario had? I mean, he had the, he has the... Only other 30-point game besides Chris Paul. I mean, I think Devin, Chris Paul doesn't even have one. I think he has the only other 30-plus-point game besides Devin Booker this season. I think it's just Frank Kaminsky. And some of the stuff he was doing on offense made the Suns just impossible to employ any sort of style of defense against because you can't trap. You know, you, if you drop, you can drop. He can shoot the 3-2. It's just the versatility of what he was doing was amazing. And his defense... His effort level on defense and his understanding of where his teammates was going to be at de- on defense was better than it had been at any point that he had played with the Suns previously, probably at any point of his career. you know, It might be Frank that gets more minutes in some scenarios. Believe it or not, it just depends on the matchup, I guess.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's a matchup thing. I think it's so funny that we've seen all four of these guys kind of paint their own masterpieces at this point in the Suns yeah. uniform. They've yeah. all... They've all had stretches of brilliance. For Dario, really, it was the beginning of his— not the beginning of his tenure, actually. His first season with Phoenix was kind of rough. But the beginning of last season, when he first started playing small ball five, was absolutely brilliant uh, and then started to fall apart a little bit throughout the season. For Frank, it was the 10-game stretch we had this year. For Bismack, it's been most recently. And for JaVale, it's kind of—I mean, JaVale's been— I think uh, people are getting on JaVale's case a little bit more recently because maybe they see some of the holes starting to develop in— with the foul trouble which we always knew was a thing and also the holes in the drop defense but for the most part JaVale has been doing exactly what he's been paid to do which is grab rebounds like a machine uh and just be a rim running threat and he's done that to a really really solid degree for the first 30 or 40 games of the season or so so yeah. it really just comes down to matchups I mean you're not going to play Frank in a buck series like yeah. that wouldn't be your look
1: Monty said after the Bucks series ended. He specifically said because he entered, he he put Frank in in the last game of the season that the Suns lost, and f- the Suns played well when Frank was in. And after the the finals ended, Monty said, "I should have played Frank more." So maybe he would. I think he might actually play. Defensively, obviously, it would be a problem. But I think he recognized the. Did offensive he really satility. say that? Yeah. And he was after Larry really went that? down. I don't remember that. It was after Dario went down and the Suns won the games that Dario played. But, you know, it was after Dario went down and he specifically mentioned Frank as a guy that he thinks that he said he looks back now as one of his biggest regrets is that he should have put Frank in earlier and allowed him to play more minutes in that series as a matchup problem for specifically for, you know, they were packing the paint against the Suns defensively and or trying to trap Chris Paul and Frank provides a different look. Than other guys did on the Suns at that time, and I understand why he would say that. But yeah, that is a guy that he actually pointed out and said he should have played more minutes.
2: So maybe he would. I mean, even the crazy, the, the crazy thing about it is even toss out Dario and Frank for a second. Let's say they are still injured. I think we still don't know the answer to this question. Really, uh, is Javale going to be the second string center come playoff time, or could yeah. it be Bismack? And yeah. then there are, and, and and if you don't have Dario and Frank. I think as we demonstrated at the beginning of this episode, there are certainly matchups where Ish would get some minutes, but I just don't yeah. think it would be in the majority of cases. It would be in the other 10% of cases, which yeah. is really hard to keep a guy fresh when he doesn't actually know when he's going to play like that.
1: Yeah, and you know what? To somebody's question here, uh, is Bismarck Biombo, does that mean that ja- his play lately, does that mean that JaVale McGee could be on the trade market? And I think at, at some point, if the Suns are you know, trying to make a specific trade and the thing that they're asking for is Javel at that point and you have Bismarck signed for the rest of the season, maybe it is possible the Suns make that trade. I'm not saying yes for, or no.
2: I don't know anything, obviously. For but. example, an Eric Gordon trade where you have to match $18 million and it can sometimes be difficult to do so and you can't just match $18 million with Dario Sharich and Jalen right. Smith. And they don't they want Shamit, other- right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Shamit is the ideal piece to send back in a Gordon trade if the Rockets, for some reason, were adamant about not taking Shamit. You'd have to get creative, and with the other mid sized contracts that the Suns have on their roster, that could mean something like either campaign, which doesn't really make sense because you don't want to surrender another guard, or Javale McGee, who's making five million dollars. Yeah. So I would say it is certainly a possibility. There's anything is on the table when you have six centers on the roster. Ultimately.
1: Yeah. Um. I I hate to do this, but I want to I want to try and fit two more in that I like here, uh, two All people. Right. Two people asked specifically about who the biggest threats would be to the Suns in the playoffs in the East and the West. We just talked about the East earlier in this podcast, so we can skip that part. But outside of the Warriors, because I think that's the obvious, who scares you the most in the West right now? Yeah. Uh, right? Nobody? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I'm just, Memphis I'm just thinking. Memphis like, was 12-2, I think, in the month of in the month of That January. was a trick
2: question, right? <laughs> it's got to be Memphis, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess, but I we've talked extensively about Memphis a couple weeks ago, and uh, the fact of the matter is, I like Memphis as a team. That right there should tell you everything you need to know. If I like a team that much, I'm not afraid of them, you know. And <laughs> I mean, it's just true. Uh, and and with Memphis, I think they're a year away. Utah. Um, actually, we just received news that Joe Ingles tore his ACL, so that's yeah, terrible news. Sucks for Joe Ingles, who's a player that I like as a matter of fact, but it's getting really tough, the situation in Utah, and there is just not another team. There is not another team that really feels like a threat. To me, the only two threats in the entire league right now really feel like Milwaukee and Golden State, Mm -hmm. and outside of that, there are teams that I think could give the Suns a good series, Mm -hmm. but I'm I'm just telling you this is how I feel today, January 31st, 2022. I would be shocked if any team other than Milwaukee or Golden State could really beat Phoenix in a series if it came down to it to win the NBA finals the one other exception I might say is the Brooklyn Nets under the idea that uh they actually have their superstars healthy um slash maybe vaccinated and playing but yeah. uh if they don't have that I think there are teams that could give us a series Memphis could push them to six M- Miami could push them to six or seven uh but I think it would be really tough for anyone other than those those two teams to actually beat them they're just yeah. that good yeah
1: yeah yeah, I think, yeah, the, the long shot of the Clippers being healthy, that could be even a first-round matchup for the Suns, but the long shot of the Clippers being healthy like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George being back at that time, I mean, that's that's scary too. So, yeah, I'll give them a little credit there too because that could be a, a tough one. Um, this is the last one, and I think we have to address this guy because he's come up to me in DMs, and people have asked me on Twitter before. But this is from Alma Lucia. She's uh, at Alma El Cubana on Twitter. She said, "She said, sign-ish, question mark, question mark, which we've we've covered, which I think both of us are, I, at least I'm a little on the fence depending on the trade deadline, but I think there's, he makes a good case to sign him. But the other part of her question is Dragic, and this is why people are asking about Dragic if you haven't seen this, but the rumors are that Dragic might be in line for a buyout uh, before that time comes, before buyouts are required, and that means that Dragic would have the ability of signing with a team outright. You wouldn't have to trade anything for him, and he could choose... The team that he could sign for now the issues with Dragic as we know and for those who haven't been paying attention he hasn't played at all this season he was injured to start the season and it sounds like right now he's fully healthy and just not playing for the Raptors we're not sure why he's not playing for the Raptors right now uh, I assume it doesn't because like Toronto he doesn't like Toronto I assume it's because he was told that he was going to be traded and he hasn't been traded yet and now maybe he wants to just be bought out and have an opportunity to sign with whatever team he wants but there's a possibility that Dragic will be of an available free agent as the Suns look for another shot creator slash shooter. And, uh, you know, what do you think?
2: I have fond memories of Goran in a Phoenix uniform both times, but I don't think he's that dude anymore, to be perfectly honest. As a buyout candidate, I don't hate it. Uh, I think he could be adequately... I mean, maybe he's better than Shamit, but honestly, I wouldn't even necessarily go that far because I think the defensive value isn't really there. He's so I'm, much I'm better lie.
1: offensively though.
2: I know, but I I'm just I'm concerned with winning a championship right now and you know this kind of screams to me like a gimmicky nostalgia move that you make if you're a 35 win team that wants to bring, you know, bring an old fan favorite home one more time and I would understand it then. For this team I'm just not sure it makes a lot of sense. That's I ca- how I feel. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And I think it's because we haven't seen him, right?
1: Even if we've seen him play a little bit and he has a little bit of juice left, I think it's great. But I'll be honest, I kind of love, <laughs> love it. I kind of love it. I understand the trepidation. I think he's, he, first of all, he's been injured a lot. Um, but the last time we saw him, 2020, 2021, in the playoffs, he averaged 16 points a game in the playoffs. And, you know, he was good in that in that series, in those series that they played. Uh, 2.8 eight assists a game. Uh, 1.8 rebounds and he shot 50 percent from two you know and and 34 percent from three so not a great three-point shooter overall not like a versatile three-point shooter but uh, the type of player that can create his own shot and can effectively run a pick and roll when somebody like Devin Booker or Chris Ball are unable to whether or not he'd come back to Phoenix is a different question I think his beef was mostly with Ryan McDonough so I think there's a chance and the idea Sentimentally, the idea of Dragic potentially winning a championship with the Phoenix Suns, it does warm my heart. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I'd love that idea. Uh, I think it would be up to the Suns to really know and understand what he has left. And I think they are limited in their resources to know that. You know, Maybe they have an inside line on who Dragic is and what he's been doing and the amount of workouts he's been putting in and how he looks in those workouts. Maybe they don't. If he looks good, I think it could work out really well. But if you're just taking a risk because maybe he is good and you don't fully know how he looks, it's definitely not worth the risk at this point. You need those roster spots for guys who can fill in when you need them in the playoffs. I understand the trepidation, but I think there's a chance it could work out for whatever team ends up with Dragic later on this year.
2: All right. James Jones, uh... Did James Jones play with Drogic? Was he a former teammate of his? I can't. Yeah, remember. Yeah, you know what? They might have played was, together. Now you was he that. like? Did they did they overlap in
1: Miami? Overlap in Miami, or maybe even on the Suns? What what year was Drogic drafted? Or, no, they didn't
2: over. Oh, fuck! Now I have to look it up. <laughs> yeah, let's. Because I'm like, because I I was like, how did it take us this long to think of if these guys already know each other? Dragic was drafted James in James Jones followed Lebron to and James Jones last season in Phoenix was 0607. So yeah, they and missed each other a little. When did Dragic, when did Dragic go to Miami? Let me see. In 1415 and James Jones' last season in Miami was 1314. So they <laughs> narrowly missed each other two yeah. times throughout their career. So as far as we know, they have no personal relationship if That's that right. matters.
1: That's right. Dragic by the way, 35 years old. You know, he would immediately be the second oldest player on the team. Uh, but yeah, who yeah. knows? It, it's something that could happen. I'm not going to completely rule it out. If the Suns are not able to find a guard on the trade market, they could easily open a roster spot and sign a player like Goran Dragic or anyone else that comes up on the buyout market, something that we haven't really touched on. So thank you, Alma, for giving us an opportunity to talk about that. Sam, you
2: got anything else before we end this one? I think that's enough for today. Uh, Apologies to all the questions we didn't get. We will do a full mailbag episode for everyone. Open it up to everyone pretty soon
1: yeah full mailbag after the trade deadline uh, and we'll get to all of those questions assuming we can but thank you everybody for listening we'll be back we should be back with a patreon episode if you want more episodes join us at patreon.com slash the timeline we will be doing live watch parties in the month of february as well hopefully four in this month and uh yeah that should be fun as well but thanks for for joining us and we'll be back soon